0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Luis Alberto Urea shares the family history behind his latest book, The House of Broken Angels. Find out why and how Volunteers are tagging hummingbirds along the banks of the San Pedro River. Nancy Stanley talks about founding the stand-up comedy showcase called The Estrogen Hour. And flutist Gary Stroutsos speaks on playing spiritual music in sacred places. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Luis Alberto Urea, the author of The Devil's Highway and 16 other books, including fiction, poetry, and essays, visited Tucson in October for a benefit for the humanitarian group No Mas Muertes. While in town, he spoke with Ariana Brocious about the current state of border enforcement, the rhetoric that surrounds it, and his latest book, The House of Broken Angels.
1: One of your most well-known books is The Devil's Highway. Right. It's a nonfiction book. It follows the story of 26 Mexican men who cross the border in Arizona and suffer immensely, and only 12 made it across. And that, that book was published in 2004, and I think it really highlighted a lot of the problems around illegal border crossings for a broad audience in a really human and visceral way. Here we are in 2018, mm-hmm. and not much has changed, at least regarding national immigration reform, are you frustrated by that?
2: Yes, in a word. I mean, my first book came out in 1993, and it was about people trapped on the Mexican side of the border. So I feel like I've been telling the same story over and over and over and over to more acclaim, but acclaim means nothing in the long run, I think. And, uh, you know, last night we were with with some lifesaver activists, and... Their take is that it's worse now than it was. Maybe not in terms of numbers of people dying. However, the interdiction policies and the cruelty of it, certainly concentration camps for children is a new low. So, yeah, I I get frustrated. And I used to be Mr. Hope. But um, it's a little rough right now to have any hope.
1: One thing you talked about or you have talked about in regards to that book, The Devil's Highway, is the high degree of access and cooperation that the Border Patrol gave you. Given the state of border politics, do you think you'd be granted that same access now?
2: From my experience meeting the Border Patrol, it was really rough at first, and they were really uninterested in letting me in. And the supervisory agent at Welton Station took me in, and he had actually sent out the rescue mission to save these guys. And those Border Patrol agents, I think we had a hard-won friendship, if I could stretch the word a little, but almost to a man, the ones who spoke to me said, we don't care if you hate us, just tell the truth. Many years later, still, when I meet agents We start to talk about the Devil's Highway, and they open these gates and talk. Um, So I do think that at times the Border Patrol seems impenetrable now. I suspect they would feel comfortable enough to talk to me, knowing or suspecting that I have an agenda, but maybe thinking that I'll give them a fair shake.
1: So with President Trump's continued talk of building the wall, the family separation at the border earlier this year, and then we're seeing continued waves of migrants arriving at the southern border, these tensions seem worse than ever, maybe. So where do you see the role of books and stories and personal narratives, like the ones that you write, in bridging those divides and helping heal, in some sense, this tension?
2: Well, I, th- I think it depends on the books. <laughs> it depends on the agenda of the author and uh, you know I think like a lot of the people who are trying to save lives out there to me it's more of a kind of a spiritual mandate than a career mandate writing works of witness my lesson was to learn to witness everybody that was my lesson with the Border Patrol I was all in on the people lost in the desert but I was gonna trash those migra agents until I got to know them and I thought I'm not a very good writer I thought I was so I think my job as a writer is to find some way for people who feel threatened and overwhelmed and angry, and people who may be just fed up with all this liberal claptrap that they hear from us, if that's what they think, to just stop and realize that the message is there is no them, there's only us. They are us.
1: You've said elsewhere that in your latest book, The House of Broken Angels, that it's either the most or one of the most political and personal for you. (laughs) You've written extensively about your family in earlier works, so what makes this one special?
2: The election of 2016, partially. My brother's death, which was a strange, hilarious, and disturbing event. My brother took ill and was clearly dying, and the family decided to throw him, it was also his birthday, to throw him a farewell birthday party, his last party on Earth, which turned into what I call the Mexican Finnegan's Wake. And I realized that so much stuff was happening right in front of my face about the culture. And I realized that, oh, yeah, we are still hung up on immigration stories. And this is a post-immigration country. And I saw it suddenly in my family that there are people who have been here 70 years or even more voting, paying taxes. They're Americans. They happen to speak Spanish but they're Americans. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk about. An American epic just happens to be Mexican-American. And at the time, as I was working on it, the rhetoric started heating up. Bad hombres, rapists, murderers. And one of the stories that really hit me, and I put it in the novel, is being in the store, I think it was Target, looking for a birthday cake and having some helpful woman come up and tell you the president's going to throw you out of our country. And they're like, what? You know, some of the kids in that family don't even speak Spanish. They speak English. So I thought that would be interesting. And I didn't want to delve into political diatribes or anything like that. But I kept some of those moments to appear by surprise in the book after, I hope, I've won you over to the family, because I wanted it to be as much of a surprise, if not shock, to the reader as it is to the people going through their day shopping at, at you know Target and getting a little birthday cake, a little message written, just American stuff. I really feel, and I tried to put it in my book, that we miss each other. If we could, we would speak to each other. It just seems impossible now
1: in earlier works of yours, you translated the Spanish more often. In your later, more recent works, including this, The House of Broken Angels, you don't. And there's a lot of Spanish language, there's a lot of colloquial Spanish, yeah. and some code switching and things like that. So is that a, a conscious choice you've made to change your approach? Or are you kind of betting on the comprehension of your readers?
2: Both. Although he, he fell in his favor a little bit, but Juno you know, Diaz said, you know, you you readers in this country will read 300 pages in Elvish, but if I speak in Spanish, you have a fit. There's that. And also, I try to be very mindful of my readers. So I put the works in Spanish. I try in surrounding context. So If you're paying attention, you can tell what's going on. You know, part of the point of House of Broken Angels is being overwhelmed. Some people can't figure out. They're like, why didn't you put a family tree? And I said, because... The point is being hit by this tidal wave of family. And uh, I think that reflects perhaps what Americans may feel about immigrant families. So all of those things go into that book. I wanted it to be a velvet assault. I wanted it to be overwhelming, but so possibly addicting that you couldn't pull yourself away from them.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: That interview was conducted by Ariana Brocious. Luis Alberto Urrea will be one of hundreds of authors featured at the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books in March. Last August, during Hurricane Harvey, birdwatchers in the Houston area were concerned about the local hummingbird population. The tiny birds are unable to fly in high winds or to go long distances without a steady supply of food. But they apparently were able to find shelter, and they were among the first birds to return to their normal habits once the storm had passed. Outside of their visits to your backyard feeder, you probably don't think much about where hummingbirds go. But learning about their travels is one of the key goals of a volunteer-powered project that Christopher Conover went to visit.
3: She's got... Grooves are moderate.
4: Weekends from spring to fall, a group gathers at San Pedro House near the San Pedro River in Cochise County, about halfway between Sierra Vista and Bisbee. Their task? Capture and tag hummingbirds.
3: She's apparently been in a big fight. Somebody knocked a big chunk of feathers out of her neck area.
5: Our project is not really just trying to catch as many birds as possible. We're just trying to get a representative sample of what's here and what condition the birds are in.
4: That's Tom Wood with SABO, or the Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory. That's the group that sponsors the tagging. His job today is to help capture the tiny birds. Before trapping begins, the group removes all but one hummingbird feeder at San Pedro House. That's where they set their trap. And then they face the challenge of actually catching the birds.
5: Even though that trap drops in the blink of an eye, that's 20 wing beats for a hummingbird. So if they're paying attention, they can outrun the drop of a trap. So we have to wait for them to have their bill down in the feeder, because if they're just hovering there and we hit the switch, they'll beat us out every time. Once
4: trapped, the birds are put in net bags. Actually, they look like small laundry bags and a volunteer takes them over to a table for tagging. That's where Sherry Williamson, a hummingbird tagger for two decades, gets to work. I just
3: got this little uh, juvenile female black chint, hatch year as we call her, because she hatched this calendar year. Just got her out of our little net bag. And I'm gonna take a look at her foot. I'm gonna test her foot and see what size band she's going to take. And if her foot doesn't slip through the hole, she takes a medium and that's what she takes so we're going to get band number m42788 going to get that in the plier and slide that onto her little foot and close it there we go that's perfect give it a little turn to make sure that it rotates freely on the leg and give it a little bit of a tug just to make sure it's not going to come off and we're good all right now that band should fit her for the rest of her life all right got to look at her bill She's got grooves, our trace grooves are just little wrinkles in the bill where the bill is still young and growing. And hers are pretty well filled in now. They fill in with uh, hard material that's basically keratin. It's the same thing that uh, makes up our skin and our fingernails. And her buff is mm, slight. And buff is light colored fringes on her body plumage that wears off over time and so she's been out of the nest a little while to have lost those lovely fringes on her. Fat is slight she needs to stick around for a while and uh, get some fat on her. Dash for breeding, Dash for pollen? breeding. I did not see any pollen on her. It doesn't mean she hasn't been visiting flowers it just means whatever pollen she picked up from the last flower she visited didn't last until we got her in hand so There aren't too many flowers this year, it's a rough year to be a hummingbird migrating in southern Arizona, because we had such a poor monsoon. Her weight is three point, she's a betweener, I'm gonna round it up to 3.6.
4: When the banding is finished, the birds are handed over to a volunteer like three-year veteran Cheryl Braun, who then hands the bird to a member of the public to release.
3: Can you see the
6: eyelashes? I can. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> Let's put this hand out and this hand behind. You know the drill. Yeah, I've been Oh, you got nice warm hands. You feel that vibration? Yes. That's his breathing. He's going 150 a minute. Wow. Their body temperature is about two to three degrees higher than humans. And even on a hot day like today, you can feel that difference. Their heart goes anywhere from 800 to 1200 a minute. We cannot feel that, you know. My analogy, it's kind of like a Harley going down the road. Yeah, you know, it makes a straight sound. I'm gonna back off and if he chooses to stay, you got lucky, okay? Yeah. Ready?
3: You getting pictures, sir?
6: All right.
3: Oh, There he goes.
4: This day, one of the lucky releasers was Penny Lucas, a Cochise County resident who recently retired from Colorado.
6: There's no weight at all. You can just feel warmth and a little quivering, which is their breathing. It's just, it's amazing.
4: The information from each of the birds is sent to a national library in Maryland where it's used to help track hummingbird population, migration, and overall health. In all, data from more than 5,000 birds has been collected at San Pedro House since 1995. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover.
0: Public speaking is one of the most dreaded activities for millions of Americans, so imagine getting up on stage in front of a live audience and also having to be funny. For Tucson resident Nancy Stanley, this sounded like a fascinating challenge, so she decided to take up comedy as part of what she called her middle aged disaffection. Today, she's still at it while also giving back to the community. Here's Tony Paniagua with an interview with mom, former journalist, lawyer, teacher, and comedian, Nancy Stanley. Nancy Stanley, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thank you, love to be here.
7: You went to a show in Phoenix, is that how it came about? I
6: did. Um, My son and I, we bonded over comedy. He was a teenager. How do you get through to a teenage boy, right? I got him tickets to see Louis Black in February of 2011, and we drove up there. And for some reason, I had like seats that weren't very good, but for some reason, when we got there, we had first row seats. It was like magic. And then when Black came out, and, and I didn't know much about comedy, and I didn't even know much about him, the transfer of energy between comic and audience was... Was just visceral for me it was like oh my god and I think I might have even said out loud I want to do that <laughs> it's that it's, it was wild I just that night decided that I was gonna try it
7: you were 56 years old <laughs> yeah Your two kids I guess right. young adults yeah uh, right. leaving the house some people would say well I'll take up golfing or gardening yeah. <laughs> and here you were taking up comedy stand-up comedy
6: yeah I mean I think it's something that terrified me then and being terrified and mastering that fear was a metaphor for kind of mastering the fears that I had about how my life was going to play out. It is all you. And if you are bad, there's only you to blame. (laughs) So it's real different. And how do you deal with that?
7: Is there rejection in your eyes? Or do you are you always loved in some way by the audience?
6: Well, you're always validated if you live through it. So (laughs) that's good. That's like, that's the first step. Really early on, Um, a famous comic said you have to love the dying as much as you love the laughing and I think that's right you have to get to a point where you can get off the stage and say oh that was just so ugly (laughs) or oh I need to improve or oh I didn't like that audience and wow they hated me and you realize the sun's going to come up the next day and you're not an abject failure because it happens when you start out it doesn't feel that way you live Uh, For the adrenaline between open mic you only feel as good as your last set in
7: 2011 You see this comic and you think this is something you want to do fast forward a few months You start the estrogen hour. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came along and what it's all about?
6: Yeah Well when you start in comedy you are really so bad that you're limited to a few minutes each time you get on stage Virtually no one wants to give you the time to just get up and ramble So you have to try out your material in little bits And it means, you know, going to bars at times that you might not want to be there and waiting in line and that kind of thing. And so... I decided that um, with the help of some good friends and my brother that I was going to do a women's show called The Estrogen Hour. Uh, It ended up having a lot of men in it at the beginning, too, because they were my buddies. And so we started a weekly show, could not support a weekly show. We were so bad and so new. And then we, uh, with my best friend Mary Steed, hit on the idea of doing a show four to six times a year that featured Up and coming women comics in Tucson, Uh, and then the occasional guestosterone, the occasional guy. Mary Steed is involved in, with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society as a um, as a volunteer fundraiser, and she runs in their marathons um, in honor of her uh, brother-in-law who died of a blood cancer. And she's been my bestie forever. And so we thought, well, we can help her make some money and meet her goals. Um, in since 2014, when we started fundraising for with the shows, um, we've raised a little under 35 thousand um, bucks. But it isn't just a fundraiser; it's also a venue for supporting women who might have bucket listed or might want to start a comedy.
7: I'm finding a correlation between celebrity chefs it seems like everybody wants to get into cooking, and now it seems like a lot of people want to get into comedy. It's a good
6: time for comedy. It's just hard. It's so much harder than you think. Yeah, tell us a
7: little bit about that. How difficult is it? For example, I just can't get up on stage and expect to be hired by somebody in Hollywood uh, six months later or something like that. Or
6: six years, or six decades. Or okay. Six... <laughs> so the hardest part isn't the performing part. You actually get over that. I mean, I, I, I vomited before my first set, and I, I used to drink a lot before sets. And no, I don't do either of those things. Um, It's not the performance that you have to master. It's the writing. It's the figuring out how to let people know who you are the moment that you take the stage so that they're receptive to whatever you're saying, so that they're not pushing you away. And then to tap into what makes us laugh, which is really something so elusive and so great. And the masters, George Carlin, Louis Black, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, they know how to do that. Laughter is the ultimate circuit breaker. I did a political show not long ago, and it was so good to get up and, you know, if we don't laugh, we're going to cry type of thing to people. It It just feels good, and it feels authentic, and you never, ever master it. That is its great appeal to me is... You can become better, you can get more stage time, you can be more popular, you can develop a following, but you still have to go out every single time as though it's your first. I know that there are a whole bunch of uh, incomplete bucket listed (laughs) comedy virgins out there and there's so many ways to find out about stand-up. You can message me through the Estrogen Hour Facebook or any other way, come to one of our shows. But we would love to build comedy audiences and give people the experience of doing something they wanted to do.
7: Okay, and then finally you started at the age of 56. You've been (laughs) at it for a few years. Seven years. Are we going to see you on stage in your (laughs) 70s and
6: your 80s? Well, yeah, as long as I can actually get on stage, you know, they're building those stages higher and higher, and I need, I'll need to get a stool in a decade probably to get on there. I don't
7: know.
0: Nancy Stanley, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thank you, Tony.
0: The next Estrogen Hour will be Sunday, December 2nd at Laugh's Comedy Club in Tucson. You can read Nancy Stanley's essay, Saved by Stand-Up, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Flutist Gary Strauzos is a musician based in Vermont who's built bridges to the Southwest through his passion for indigenous music. Gary will be playing a solo concert in Tucson this Sunday that pays tribute to his mentor, the late jazz artist Paul Horn. I asked Gary to share some of his first-hand knowledge of the story behind the recording of one of Horn's most famous albums, Inside the Taj Mahal.
5: Paul Horn was a great West Coast jazz studio musician and had his own Paul Horn quintet in the late 50s in Los Angeles. And Miles Davis actually endorsed him to be on Columbia Records. He met someone that was doing Transcendental Meditation, a teacher, and he decided to go to India a year before the Beatles and Mike Love and Donovan showed up. And he went to the ashram. The following year, he was supposed to make a film about that. It fell through. So he went over to the Taj Mahal, a tomb that was took 26 years to build by, by Shah Jahan for his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. And he asked the guard, I'm gonna come in and play my flute. Guard said, no, you're not playing. This is a tomb I only sing to God. Paul said, well, I'm going to play to God. And the guard said, OK, then I'm going to sing to God. So when you hear the original Inside the Taj Mahal, you hear a guard singing and then the flute improvisations and a 29 second delay. He only made that record for his friends, he told me. No one wanted to put it out. No one's going to buy a solo flute record. Two years later, they decided to put it out. It sells a million and a half copies. To quote Paul, a cosmic accident. He created a whole genre called Inside. He doesn't like being called the father of new age. He started playing in Russian cathedrals and the pyramids, and he created this whole kaleidoscope of recordings in sacred spaces. So that's just a little bit about Paul Horn's early life and how he transformed. And then really in the last 20 years of his life, he didn't really play much. He was living down in Rio Rico, then he was up on a little island off British Columbia. And he married Anne Mortify, who was a really well-known Canadian singer. Because Paul used to have a TV show in Vancouver called The Paul Horn Hour. But he gave me permission to, to speak about him and his teachings and, and, and play any of his music. But he did say one thing. Gary, I'm only going to let you do that if you keep sharing with the young kids and you keep working with the kids. You're better at working with the kids than me. I never really did that. I want you to keep working with the young people. Miles Davis used to come over to his house to swim in his swimming pool and have a barbecue. And this was during the Kind of Blue era. Miles is showing Paul Horn about playing with space. And when you look at the old cover on Columbia, it's like he plays the horn the way it should sound. So this big endorsement for Miles. He took the modal concept of Miles Davis and his jazz Knowledge, He went into that Taj Mahal and he played improvisations for 36 minutes off the cuff, mostly with the alto flute because that was his favorite flute. But his sense of harmony and his sense of space, he actually created a whole sound by accident because he used the space, the space working with him, creating on the spot, No big rehearsals. This guy was jazz from the beginning to the last note he ever played, but they wanted to make him this father of new age and the reverb and the whole kid caboodle. I want to educate young people that Paul Horn was a jazz musician, a jazz composer. His song Mirage for Miles on that first Columbia record is priceless because it actually sounds like one of the songs on Kinda Blue, only he's playing the flute. It caught people off guard, I think, a little bit. So that's a little bit about Paul.
0: That was Gary Strauzos, with music recorded inside the Taj Mahal in 1968 by his mentor, Paul Horn. A film called Ongtubkwa, about Gary Strautsos' musical odyssey at the Grand Canyon, will screen at the Loft Cinema on Saturday, November 17th, at 4.30 p.m. And you can hear Gary in solo concert at the San Pedro Chapel on East Fort Lowell Road on Sunday, November 18th at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark Backlamore.
1: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.